sex talk. Derek and Miley. Cause sexuality is tough. And okay, sexist isn't good enough. No. Sex talk with Derek and Miley. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to Sex Talk with Erica Miley. This is Erica Miley here, and I have a wonderful guest. I'm fangirling a little bit. I'm just going to be honest. (laughs) This is Dr. Justin Lee Miller. He is a research fellow at the Kinsey Institute, author of the blog Sex and Psychology, and the book Tell Me What You Want. Welcome. Should I call you like Dr. Justin, like Dr. Ruth? You know what I mean? Oh, I, whatever it is that you want to call me, I'm I'm not hung up on the doctor title. <laughs> we just, in the field of sex and psychology, we have these kind of wonderful um, benchmark researchers. And in my brain, you're one of those. So I'm just saying. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I just want to dive right in about like how you became a sexuality researcher and how did you kind of come to this wonderful world of data so for me it was really accidental you know it's not something i planned on doing and it's certainly not something i ever thought i was going to be doing from a young age you know nobody sits around when they're 10 years old and says when i grow up i want to be a sex researcher (laughs) um I mean, maybe it's happened for somebody, but um, it, that, that's not the way that it happened for me. What really brought me to the field was I went to graduate school to, to study social psychology at Purdue University. And I went specifically to work with someone who was studying the psychology of romantic relationships and was really focused on what makes for a healthy, committed, long-term relationship. And in the process of my graduate training, I was assigned to be a teaching assistant for a human sexuality course. And to me, that was like the eye-opening moment because I had never taken a human sexuality course. I, you know, my experience with sex education was limited to a very awkward fifth grade, you know, they separate the boys and the girls and tell them totally different things in a couple of hours and just assume that that's everything you need to know. And then in high school, the, the swim coach who spoke in this monotone voice talked to us about sex once. And I, I think I came out of that knowing even less than I did going in. Um, Absolutely. Like the Mean <laughs> Girls, it's like Mean Girls has had it right for years. Like the gym coach coming out and scaring us to death and then like throwing condoms at us. Yeah. And then when, when I got to college, I went to a, a Catholic, private Catholic university where, you know, there was no human sexuality course on the menu that you could even mm-hmm. take. So right. I really, I had no formal sex education. So being assigned as a teaching assistant for this course just opened up my eyes to the fact that sex research is a thing. And I was fascinated by it. And I, I got to, as part of that assignment, lead these weekly discussion sections with students. And so it was really, for me, the first time, first opportunity I had to just sit there and and talk about sex openly with a group of people. And we covered everything and they would ask me questions and I wouldn't know the answers. So I'd have to look it up. And, you know, so this really got me thinking. And then, I, you know, I started 
after being involved in this course, having all of these questions I had about sex that I realized hadn't been answered. And I'm studying uh, the psychology of relationships, but um, I wasn't really studying sex. And I thought, you know, that's kind of weird. If you're studying relationships, you, you probably kind of need to be studying sex too. So, yeah. uh, <laughs> so you know, all of that kind of brought me to the field of, of sex research. And, you know, ever since graduating, I've done more and more work in this area, writing textbooks, starting a blog, and and basically just being a full-time sex educator and, and researcher. And we'll get to the part where people can find you, but I'm a huge fan of not only just your blog, but all the stuff you put on Reddit. That's one of the ways that I get a lot of my information is Reddit. But in particular, that's how I get all of Dr. Justin's things. So as far as like when you've kind of you've been in this scientific place for, a, for collecting this data for a, a quite a long time now so when you kind of think about the information that you've collected how has it kind of impacted you as a researcher of human sexual development mm-hmm. so i've conducted research in a lot of different areas i wouldn't say i'm your traditional academic most academics are people who you know, they sort of pick one topic and then they study it through this increasingly narrow lens for the rest of their career. And I would be so incredibly bored doing that. Um, (laughs) So, you know, I I tend to describe myself as a, as a promiscuous researcher in that, you know, I I don't want to do just one thing forever. There are so many questions that I think need to be answered and there aren't nearly enough sex researchers to be able to answer them. So I tend to go off in a lot of different directions. So for example, I've done studies on on threesomes and group sex. I've done studies on polyamory and consensual non-monogamy. I've done studies looking at uh, sexual health in relation to smartphone dating apps. I've done work comparing same sex and different sex relationships. It's, it's, you know, I'm kind of all over the map in what I do, but that's the way I like it. You know, I like to be doing a lot of different things. And so that's also kind of given me an appreciation for just, how many important things there there are and how many worthwhile things there are in this field to study. But studying all these things has really helped me to better understand that human sexual behavior and development is this very complex process. And it's driven by, on the one hand, you've got the the biological and, and hormonal and genetic factors that play a role. Then you've got all of the uh, social learning influences and the cultural factors that play a role. And then you've got your own unique individual psychology, your personality factors, your own previous sexual history and experiences. And so all of these things come together to shape what it is that you want when it comes to sex and how you approach it. And I think it's just given me this appreciation for for how diverse, complex, and multifaceted human sexuality is. That we're humans and that we're just these big, we're just more than these very specific boxes and categories. And I I think the variability in the research that you've looked at, and I think probably speaks to more of, of how, especially as technology starts to influence our sexuality, how varied we're going to have to find participants to even research. So I think that, I think this is also a good opportunity to talk about. I'm already going to start talking about your book, Tell Me What You Want, because I think it's in it, what you've done with this book is really important is this, this very large conversation that needs to be had about our sexual fantasies, but also how technology impacts that and then how we access people. So tell me a little bit about, tell me what you want. 
So this was a book that was many years in the making. I think it was about four years from the time I came up with the idea until it actually came out in print. And it took a long time because as the the basis for the book, I conducted this massive survey of over 4,000 Americans from all 50 states where I asked them uh, more than 300 questions about their sexual fantasies and their personalities and their sexual histories. And the, the goal was to really look at what are people today fantasizing about? Where do our fantasies come from? What do they say about us? How many people have ever shared their fantasies with a partner? How many have acted on them? And what were their experiences like? Because I wanted to get this really comprehensive understanding of our fantasies, what they say about us and and their relation to our sex lives, because there's really not a whole lot of research out there on this this subject. And and I had a lot of questions about fantasies that had just never been answered. So I, I decided to do this really ambitious survey and then write a whole book about it. And I decided rather than doing this as a textbook or an academic journal article, I wanted it to be something that the average person could pick up and read because so many of us feel shame and guilt and anxiety and embarrassment about our fantasies. And I wanted to help people better understand their own fantasies and feel more normal and also feel equipped to have the tools that they need to, if they want to, share those fantasies with a partner and maybe even act on them. Absolutely. And I think uh, many of my listeners know, because I've already talked about your book on here, you suggest it because it's very, very readable. And I think that often is a catch for when they're engaging with scientific research generally. It's not super easy to read and understand. And that's something that I really appreciate your book is that about the average person can pick this up and learn a lot about themselves and others. So I appreciate that that you did that for when you envisioned this book. So when you started this massive undertaking of 4,000 people is a whole lot. That's a lot of damn people. So how did you get access to these folks? Like, How, how did you collect this data? I recruited the participants primarily through social media. So they were recruited on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, through my own uh, blog and website as well. And I recruited people online because you can get much more diverse samples that way. And the truth of the matter is that most sexuality research is based on these very limited college student samples. So it's people aged 18 to 22 or 24. Uh, They're primarily white, primarily heterosexual, just not very diverse in a lot of ways. So I would say that throughout my career, I've pretty much almost exclusively done online research because I want to have more diversity in my samples because I I want to be able to speak beyond just the college student crowd. And so in this data set that I collected, I had people ranging from 18 to 87. They came from different geographic regions. They were diverse in terms of their their racial and ethnic background, diverse in terms of their sexual identity. So I I had diversity in a lot of ways. And I think that that's really important to have when you're studying sexuality so that it's not just always about white, cisgender, heterosexual college students. Exactly. And I think that especially as college students are just starting to kind of figure out what even they like and they're doing some more experimenting that maybe uh, or or not because they're brand new to it. So they're just like, oh, a new position. That is probably about where I'm at. And maybe what who's in their 30s or 40s or might be more adventurous to try. So I think I think that, that it makes a lot of sense to try to do a much bigger sample and try to access 
people in a different way. One of the things I wonder, and I just wonder this generally, is how, because of the limitations that are coming in through social media around sex, around sexual images, and anything that has perceived as sexual, so how we can go about getting that data. I mean, do you have thoughts around that? Like the limitations that are coming in through like Facebook and not necessarily Twitter, but more like Facebook and YouTube. And there's just quite a bit more limitation. You mean in terms of like the restrictions that they place on advertising anything sex related? Exactly. Like Tumblr is taking all away. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It it certainly has become more complex and challenging. And so, uh, you know, I think something we're going to talk about a little bit later today is some of my research on uh, cuckolding fantasies. And for the study that we're going to talk about, I actually recruited more than half of my participants through Tumblr because I went to these well, one of my colleagues went to one of these Tumblr pages that was full of cuckolding porn. And so we were able to, to recruit people that way who had this interest. Now that that option is no longer available to us, it would be harder to, to conduct a study like that because where are these people going and, and are they going to be as accessible from a research standpoint? So yeah, I, I, I do have concerns about the, the direction that things are going. And you know, I can also say uh, on Facebook in particular, I previously had advertised for some sex-related studies that I was doing, but you can no longer do any ads that say sex in the title uh, anywhere. You know, I have, I have friends who are sex therapists who say, Facebook won't let me say that I'm a sex therapist. Right? Yep. Or I can, um, I've tried to put ads for my practice and you have to be very careful. And it usually, and because they scan your website, <laughs> they, they, all of my podcast episodes are there. So there's quite a bit of limitation about even reaching an audience to help. Yep, absolutely. So as far as like, when you think about this, this data, this giant amount of data that you collected, what are some of the biggest takeaways that you just like floored you like you looked at this big picture and you just went holy cow this is this is incredible what are some of the most common things you found from your data i guess i should say first that you know what what surprises me when it comes to sex i think is very different from what might surprise <laughs> the average person because i've seen and heard it all by now uh so so my threshold is, is is a little bit different but some of the things that i thought were really interesting were were some of the findings related to differences between men and women and i found that you know there was actually a lot of commonality in the things that we were fantasizing about and based on some previous research on sexual fantasy it really seemed to say that women's fantasies are much more emotional than men's are and you know men's are much more focused on you know adventure and group sex and all these other sorts of things and what i found in my data was that the vast majority of women were having these adventuresome and group sex type fantasies and the vast majority of men were were having um, emotion-based fantasies as well and so you know yes there are differences in the relative frequency with which people seem to have certain fantasies but there's actually a lot of commonality in there so i thought that was one of the things that was really interesting one of the other things that i thought was really cool was looking at the way that we see ourselves in our sexual fantasies. There's really no previous research looking at this. And so I was able to look at how do you actually see yourself in your fantasy and how is that similar or different to how you are in reality? And if you are different, what does that mean? So I, I found that most people change themselves in at least some ways. That could be changing their body, changing their genital appearance, changing their personality, changing their age. You know, you can have these changes that go in a lot of different directions. And I found that 
they, they seem to say something important about us. So for example, women were more likely than men to, to fantasize about changing their body, which I think speaks to the cultural pressures that are placed on women to, to look a certain way. But men were more likely to fantasize about changing their genitals than women, because there's a lot of pressure on men to, to have a, a large and potent penis, right? I also found that gay men in particular were different from heterosexual men and that they fantasized more about changing their bodies and their genitals, right? And I think that speaks to the the pressure that exists within the gay community to have this perfect overall body, including genital appearance. I also found that personality factors mattered too. So people who are high in the personality trait of conscientiousness, where they're very detail-oriented, actually were the least likely to fantasize about changing themselves, which I think is interesting because these are people who are very people who are very detail-oriented in reality are very detail-oriented in their fantasy. So you know, I think that our fantasies and the way we see ourselves in them say say a lot unique about us and, and also about the culture in which we're embedded. Absolutely. I think that's one of the things I, I speak about a lot is not only just how they see themselves in their fantasies, but how that actually impacts their ability, like performance anxiety. So they are so focused about on how they look to their partner or to themselves. They're not engaged in the pleasure they're feeling. So I, I definitely can, I can at least anecdotally agree with your research because it's it's such an impact with our culture and the expectations that it, it puts on us. So as far as I don't want to miss out on talking with you about coupling because I, you know, the, the listeners may not be as excited about the interesting sexuality things. That we are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know that you've done some of this work with Dan Savage. He's like, he's like the sexual mentor to us all in podcasting. Right. But as far as like, how did you kind of, I mean, I know you mentioned Tumblr. Kind of, how did you kind of start this journey to look at this kind of data? Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess I'll start by saying what cuckolding is in case some of your listeners aren't familiar. And, and <laughs> cuckolding is basically when somebody is turned on by the idea of watching their partner have sex with somebody else. So this is, it's like a threesome, but it's not a threesome where everybody's a mutually equal participant. It's where you've got one partner who's taking on this voyeuristic role where they're just kind of sitting and watching their partner have sex with somebody else and their partner is kind of taking on that more exhibitionistic role. They're they're sort of putting on a show in a way. So for this particular study I did, it was a collaboration with Dan Savage and Dan was specifically interested in looking at cuckolding among gay men because he had been getting a lot of letters and emails from readers saying they were interested in it. And we had previously thought that, you know, this was like something that was really unique to to heterosexual men, right? Because most of the cuckolding porn that's out there is straight men watching their wives or girlfriends having sex with, with other men. So Dan had noted this increase in interest in gay cuckolding. And so we wrote to Pornhub to see if they had any data that could corroborate this. And you know, you know, they got all the data. <laughs> and, and, and they did. And they wrote back right away and said that, you know, searches for cuckolding on our gay pages have increased over the last, you know, however many quarters that, that, that they looked at. So that led us to, to conduct this study to look at, well, what's the psychology behind gay cuckolding and how is that maybe similar or different to, to heterosexual men who are into it? So we recruited this uh, sample of, I think it was around 500 primarily gay identified men, mostly through Tumblr and through Dan Savage's 
podcast and, and website, and they answered questions about their their cuckolding fantasies. And we wrote this paper that sort of describes what they're like and how they're similar or different to straight men, and and also what their experiences were like if they had shared and acted on those fantasies with a partner. I think it's a very interesting thing how how Pornhub and how that infograph that they put out every year their their mm-hmm. data in review, and I think it's a wonderful resource, but also you know creepy too. <laughs> but I, I think being able to look at the small pockets of data across different types of demographics is really really important. So how do you think that we should go about? accessing these these pockets of folks right like being able to understand like this very specific niche of people because it does tell us a a bigger picture of sexuality so what do you think about access and who do you think should be doing this type of (laughs) so i I think there there is a place for for pornhub and for some of these other big data sites to reveal something about us. You know, a lot of researchers, sex researchers in particular, have been going to Google Trends lately, which is open and accessible to anyone with an internet connection. And you can type in and see what people are searching for and and how those searches are changing over time. So I think that that does tell us something important and we can tap into populations that we might not otherwise be able to, to access. But I think there are limitations of you know, using some of those big data sources like Pornhub, where we don't necessarily know exactly who was on that computer at that time. <laughs> and how representative is that sample of the broader population? We, we don't really know that. So I think that's why we still need the academic research to supplement it. And ideally, we would draw these large nationally representative samples, but it's just really hard to do in the field of sex research because there's almost no money to do it. So, you know, that creates the real constraint that we have and why we tend to focus on convenience samples and, you know, whoever we can get to participate just because there there are roadblocks and restrictions to to funding sexuality research. So we need more private sources out there that have money and grants that are available for sex researchers. Yo folks, give us all your money. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, bring the money. And we'll do sexy studies and share them with you and and, and satisfy your curiosity. Absolutely. I absolutely think you're right. Like barriers are such, and and that's not even counting the barrier of trying to get people to even answer these questions. And the shame that our culture promotes. Lots of sexy things in the media, but we're not going to give you good education about it. (laughs) Yep. No, I couldn't agree more. It's a problem. Quick break from the action, folks. Ah, action. <laughs> I just want to tell you about my Patreon. Every week, I bring you guests and, seriously, lots of sex nerdery. Help me keep doing that by becoming a supporter. What do you get in return? Cool perks. For real. I am going to be doing shout-outs, stickers, a bunch of stuff. So check it out at ericamiley.com forward slash Patreon. That's E-R-I-K-A-M-I-L-E-Y dot com forward slash Patreon. I hope to see you and see more of you by becoming a Patreon. Thanks, guys. So as far as what's going on with you, what's new coming up, what are you going to be putting out in the world and how do people find you? So I have a lot of studies underway at the moment. 
I recently collected some data looking at men who send unsolicited photos of their genitals to women. And I want to look at the psychology about it on this podcast. I tell you what. <laughs> and now I have the data. Uh, so I'm hoping to present those later this year at the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality Conference. And the submission deadline for that conference is sometime in the next few days. So that's going to light a fire under me to finally get those data out there. I was going to say, I got an email just recently. (laughs) (laughs) In addition to that, I'm working on a new book project. I can't really say much about it right now, but you know, there, there's another book that's in the works and that one is not going to take four years to come out. (laughs) It's going to be much faster. And then beyond that, I run my blog, Sex and Psychology, which you can get to at sexandpsychology.com. And I update it several times a week with write-ups of the latest sex research. So that's basically it's a form of adult sex ed so that people can go and learn about what's going on. And sometimes people will send their questions in and I'll answer them. So you can follow the blog or you can follow me on any of the the social medias. As you mentioned, I have a, a Reddit page it's Reddit, a psychology of sex. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, uh, you name it. So just visit my website, Sex and Psychology, and um, all the links for all the social medias are there and choose your, your method of choice. Fantastic. Are, are like new speaking engagements on there too? So if people want to come see you in person, they can? Yeah, so I'm still in the midst of uh, a, a tour across the country where I'm putting on workshops and lectures about the science of sex. And um, that's all listed on my website as well. There's a public speaking tab that you can click. And I have some upcoming engagements in Los Angeles, New York, Chicago, and Seattle. So come out and see me. Woohoo, woohoo. Yes. Go see, go see Justin. He's great. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all of the wonderful, amazing data that you have collected. And uh, you know, I will have you back <laughs> ever the new book, uh, Secret Squirrel Folks, that's, that's coming to us. So thank you again. And thank you folks for sticking around. And I will make sure all of Justin's information is in the show notes so that you can find him really, really easily. And don't forget to subscribe. Rate five stars so you can find me and Justin in lots of places. Everybody have a wonderful day and thank you so much. Thanks for listening, folks. Please rate and review on iTunes. It helps this podcast get found. If you leave a five-star review, let me know about it on any social media and I'll shout you out on the podcast. You can find my website at ericamiley.com. You can find me on Facebook, the gram, and Twitter. See y'all next time.